track of time. So hi, everybody. Um, can I get a show of hands how many other physical therapists are here or occupational therapists? <gasps> or OTAs. Oh, OTAs or PTAs. Awesome. Did you get the scholarship? Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. And I have been fighting some sort of something. My immune system is busy this week, so my voice does not sound like I recognize it, <clears throat> and I might do a live performance of Smelly Cat later, in case you want some entertainment. Yeah, friends, I see who you are, the Friends fans. If you didn't get that reference, it's from the show. <clears throat> so the title, if some of you signed up for Pain Week months and months ago, you probably noticed a title change. I thought that might be interesting to explain, just as an intro, because I submitted a title proposal with something called the Red Rover, Red Rover, send your chronic pain patient right over, right? Because in my mind, that, that game on the schoolyard, which most of us, at least anyone who grew up in the U.S., played that game, right? Anyone not know the game? I won't spend too much time. But basically, it's trying to break through a chain of people so you can join their team or not join their team. And with chronic pain, to me, it seems like we're all trying to not let the patient join our team sometimes, which is unfortunate. And I hope that at, when you leave today, you have a, a strong sense of optimism and enjoyment for what you do, revitalizing what you do, and uh, thinking in terms of how we can be a cohesive team. This title came about because our wonderful graphic designer and artist, Daryl Fossa, was struggling to make a poster for my other title. <laughs> so, so he offered this, and I said, sure. I was a literature major. Uh, Milan Kundera wrote a book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and I read that book, and I, after I agreed to the title, I thought, oh boy. That's hard to overlap into chronic pain. Um, so not to spend too much time on that either, but I think it is valuable to consider how these things fit together. This I see in practice all the time where patients that I, I consider to be one way, I sit with them and then I learn something new about them. I read this book. Anyone else read the book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being? Nobody. One person, Ed. Oh, we're going to talk later. <laughs> well. It is, it is not a book about pain per se, but it's a book about politics and relationships and love and how we weigh all of those and how we make sense of our life. And lightness can be seen as something positive or negative. And it can be unbearably light when you just seek out beauty and, and flash in the pan kind of love. And that's the theme of that book. I see that true for patients too, who really seek the quick fix the simple answer, the momentary reprieve, and our job, as I see it, as clinicians and as, as teams that work together, is to reinforce the idea that there is no magic bullet, same as the keynote speaker, Dr. Zakharov, said. There's no magic bullet there. There can be momentary reprieve, but what are we doing for the long term, and how do we reinforce that kind of behavior change that does not happen quickly? and all physical therapists in the room, probably OTs too, we know that we're not massage therapists. Patients don't always know that, <laughs> but we don't, we're not in the business of quick fix. And getting patients to buy into that model is not easy for any of us. And today, I really hope that uh, Dr. J left me the clicker. I don't know. <laughs> I said it was up here. All right. I hope that you go away feeling that you have a few phrases you can use. I'm going to give you some elevator pitches and all the work that I've been doing on part of a wonderful team. Um, it's not working. <laughs> oh, first rule, turn it on. Still, okay. 
Uh, I work with a wonderful team. I'm lucky enough to work very cohesively with the team. Not everybody has that privilege or luxury. And there are still many ways that you can do a better job of making the patient feel like there's the group hug going on. Right? That's my goal today. Before I get started, I really need to tell you that I'm here in the capacity of a clinician, a physical therapist, and someone who loves to work in chronic pain. I am not representing the VA or the federal government. So things that I say here should not be taken as policy or practice um, protocols or anything uh, resembling an official position of the VA or the Department of U.S. Um, Department of Veterans Affairs. Pardon me. <clears throat> so the bowler cap is a symbol of the, the book. People tend to come to us, I think, wearing what they want us to see as clinicians, putting on a face for us, and partly what I believe we should be doing all the time is asking, how do you get back to you? Because what you're showing me may not be an honest representation of you. I hope that by the end of today, you'll, or at the end of this session at least, you'll be able to explain how a person can work with other clinicians and you can explain that other clinician's job, even if they're in your office, if that patient is working with you. That's the best way I know how to support my teammates because the patient may not ever see a psychologist. They might not ever see a, a pharmacist or a pain specialist, um, or at least they won't see one in your network. They might go out of network or they might go across state lines. And how do we explain what they do, um, even if we're not going to be able to call that person on the phone? My timer stopped, sorry. And I hope you'll be able to know the difference between multi- and interdisciplinary interactions. There is a difference. Those terms are not interchangeable. And knowing the difference, uh, it really matters because of how we then think about structuring care and care plans and deciding if you're going to build a clinic, what do you want it to look like? What are the differences in those two approaches? And at, at the, uh, all throughout, I hope that you're going to find some ways to speak in patient-friendly language, that elevator pitch, help your patient understand why you're making a referral to that person across town or this person across state lines. Why is that other discipline important for your treatment plan? That's really not easy to do, and I've done it a lot. I have to sell a lot of other people, and they have to sell physical therapy to the patients who come see me. So this kind of... Um, you know, your, your two-minute talk on, on why you should go see another person on the care team can be the only two minutes you have with that client in your office, right? Um, so I'll, gonna, I'll give you some cl uh, clinical pearls and things that I found useful. It's like the TV. Where's the sensor? I don't know where to aim it. Um, but just to remind ourselves, chronic pain is a major issue. Dr. J was just talking about migraine headaches, I think, right? And there are other talks on migraine headaches, plenty of information about low back pain. And those happen to be the top two slots in the Global Disease Burden Report that just was published. And it's a large collection of data you see starting from 1990 all the way to 2016. When we measure years lost to disability, these are the top five reasons why. So chronic pain care is a really important thing to be good at, even if you're not a chronic pain specialist. And full disclosure, I did not aim to be a chronic pain specialist. Does anyone in the room deliberately set out to be a chronic pain specialist? Raise your hand. Two, right? Two people. So the rest of us fell into it for reasons we may or may not be able to explain. And I personally am thrilled that I'm here. I did not expect to be thrilled by this job, by this work. 
but because I'm so excited by it, I think it's also important to share some of the enthusiasm so that we all can feel um, perhaps like this isn't so hard. It doesn't have to be so hard. That's my attitude. If you're looking to read more about the global attitude and, and the international community's opinion on how we should be changing pain care for for chronic back pain, this is a great series to look at, the Lancet series. There are three papers, and uh, there are numerous authors who participated in this project. They have a lot of interesting things to say about how we conceptualize pain, specifically chronic low back pain, that, that lumbago diagnostic code it means nothing, right? Just means they hurt somewhere here and we don't know why. Uh, but that's a great series of papers to read. I'm not going to go through that at all today. Here are some things that have recently changed our direction and our practice protocols and our guidelines in the recent past. I do work for the VA in San Francisco, so we have had a number of things change. I was hired under the 2009 directive, so my position exists because of that. And if you went to some other talks this week, you probably heard about the, the decade of pain management and fighting pain from 2000 to 2010. And after almost a decade of research and doing that, it turns out we weren't doing such a great job, so the 2009 directive was part of that uh, response to say we got to do better here. So the VA specifically came up with a stepped care model, um, and there were other national pain strategies. There are lots of things going on that have influenced our policy and practice. So that's the backdrop. Now, I say this because if you've been in practice for a long time, and you got used to treating patients the way you treat them, and you know a large subset of those patients do well, it's going to be hard to think differently about why we should change now, just because someone put out a guideline, right? That resistance to change is a natural adult brain thing, and it's not easy to shift our frameworks. It's not easy to shift our attitudes and beliefs, uh, but we ask our patients to do it all the time, so I just... I just want to put that out there. We should be equally um, ready to change our beliefs. Here's some examples of how the major shifts have played out in policy. So just look at the title of this document, Transforming the Treatment of Chronic Pain, Moving Beyond Opioids. We've heard a lot of talks this week. I have read a lot of the synopses on integrative health approaches, right? Just teaching people about nutrition and sleep optimization. And that seems like a no-brainer thing, but it's interesting how this is now considered a new thing when that was family medicine 30 years ago, right? <laughs> but the, here's where we are. We're trying to move away from the complex and re-simplify, and yet pain is a very complex problem. In my field in physical therapy, there was a huge marketing effort after the CDC guidelines came out really promoting physical therapy over medications. And um, that was just, I think, opportunistic because that's what we've been doing all along. Um, but you'll see this kind of stuff in the media and there's a big push. Now, I say that because uh, anyone in the crowd, primary care provider or send patients to physical therapists, raise your hand if that's you, right? And how easy is it to get them to go? When you hurt, You've been there, done that, you don't want to do it again, or it made you feel worse, right? That's, that's kind of what I get in my office. So how can you help support that transition or support that bridge or, or maybe have a different conversation about why movement matters to begin with? Maybe it doesn't involve a physical therapist. Sorry, guys. I'm not trying to throw us under the bus. Um, so healthcare is changing. That's, that's not anything we need to question. And you all know that pain care is in the spotlight. Even if you don't work in a pain clinic, it's all over the media. It's all over the international news, too. That doesn't mean you have to change what you do. And I don't, I'm, I'm putting prescribing habits aside. 
talking about the other things that we've all done all along. You don't have to change what you do with a patient. If you're a manual therapist, you don't have to stop doing manual therapy. If you're a chiropractor, don't stop doing manipulations. If you like dry needling, do that. If you do interventional medicine, keep doing it. But what I propose is you think differently about what is the mechanism that makes someone change? What is your treatment actually doing to the person? And how can we change the way we talk about these mechanisms with patients so that we all have consistent messages? So that no matter what you're doing and what discipline you practice, the patient gets a consistent message. That's gonna be a key um, underpinning concept that you'll hear from me. But before we talk about treatment or teamwork, this is the movie, but we gotta talk about Kevin. Did you see that or read the book? No, missing my reference all the time. We have to talk about pain, right? So how do we reconceptualize pain? Uh, I was taught to only think in terms of C fibers and spinal thalamic tracts, right? And that's pretty basic pain science, but that does not explain someone whose back started hurting after they slept on concrete one night, and then it never stopped. That does not explain the mechanism, right? So how do we talk about pain to patients? I recently uh, came across a really great series of lectures. If you're interested, Straight Shot Health is a reference that I have throughout here. A couple slides future um, coming up. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Smelly cat might happen. <laughs> uh, Dr. Kakaro has some nice references in YouTube videos and free learning opportunities. And um, some of this material comes from his website. But everybody knows this definition by now. If you don't, Look it up, I'm not gonna read it for you, but keep in mind this, uh, the International Association for Study of Pain has proposed a new definition of pain. And if you haven't commented on it, you can get, you know, you, you can get that uh, online somewhere, but I don't know when they're closing the commentary. Anyone else know when they're closing the comments on that? Basically, they're asking healthcare providers to make an opinion and post an opinion about the new proposed definition. But here's something important. What pain is has been agreed upon by a number of international health professionals, leaders in the field, but we don't often talk about what pain isn't. It isn't nociception, not the same thing. Nociception is just the biologic process of transmitting one signal from one place in the body to another place in the body. That doesn't mean we have pain, right? How many people in the room today have a bruise that you know you got sometime but you don't remember and it never has hurt, right? If that's you, you had nociception but no pain. How many people know a patient who had a very dramatic injury and no pain? Can't deny that's not nociception going on, right? It's not the same thing. Nociception is purely a biologic process. Pain is also not a nerve impulse. It's not something we can block. And when I talk about language matters, a pain block shot might be a problematic phrase to use because it implies that we can block the pain somewhere in the body before it reaches our brain. It's not a nerve impulse. It's not a simple stimulus re response process. So it's a very complex process based on a number of factors, including beliefs, expectations, context, the environment you're in, your past experience, all of that. It's not a simple stimulus response. Nociception has a big vote in the game Right? Gerrymandering might be at play here, but it's not that simple. And it's not a message just passively received by the brain. So keep those things in mind when you think about how you explain to a patient why that person still hurts. Why you came to my office, I've had pain for 10 years, why can't anyone fix it? 
how would you explain that to a patient? Keep thinking about how you do it now and what you might think about differently. Based on the current definition that we have for pain, these key elements are present. It's unpleasant, it's sensory and emotional, and it's an experience. So that experience is something that I find really important. That may be language that you can start embedding in your conversations with patients about pain, pain experience. And this is something I, wor I learned from working closely with psychologists. Pain experience is, is a term that they just bind together. Your pain becomes your pain experience. We can change an experience. We know that. Everybody knows that. You can have a really bad experience at a restaurant and never want to go there again, but you can also eventually go back and have a positive experience, right? So pain experience has a little more transient quality versus pain that never changes. So when we use language um, describing pain, that might be one little tweak that you make in your uh, conversations with patients that may help move from one stage of readiness to the next if there's some hope involved. So I'll come back to this. This is an old paper, but these three domains are important to consider when we talk about pain. The dimensions of pain always include these three things, even if it's a fresh ankle injury on the sports field, or if it's chronic headaches or chronic back pain. All of these factors are at play all of the time in every individual. And Dr. Mackey, there's a big Stanford representation here, so people who work for Stanford might even know this quote, but uh, he says this a lot, chronic pain is a team sport. So this is a conference I love coming to because it emphasizes the multidisciplinary nature of treating chronic pain. We cannot do it alone. And partly why I love what I do is because I have a great team around me. And if you're a sole practitioner and you are already burnt out after two years, Start thinking about how you can form a team even if you're not geographically co-located. It's not easy, I get that. But it's pretty important and patients need to know that too because none of us are gurus that can make magic happen. I wish I were, I would, you know, that would be nice. Interdisciplinary versus multidisciplinary. Basics, I'm just gonna give you this little, draw, this little illustration and one on the next slide. So multidisciplinary is the most common, I would argue still. And that just means we might work with the same patient, but we don't share notes, we don't share care plans. What I think I need to do for a patient does not get influenced by what you've already done or plan to do, okay? So it might look great on paper to have a patient who's working with a physical therapist and a chiropractor and an interventional medicine doc and a primary care doctor and a psychologist, but none of those people talk. That's problematic because, imagine this scenario, and this just happened with a patient. Patient I was working with, uh, really, his only goal was to go back to jogging. He really wanted to jog. He's in his 60s. That was his favorite thing, and he really missed it, and he was starting to feel better. And I said, fantastic. Go. Let's figure out how to get you back there. I see no reason why not. Done the physical exam. He was worried about his knees, his osteoarthritic knees, because that's what someone told him he had. And I encouraged him. He believed me. He was ready to go. And the very next week, he went to his uh, primary care provider, who said, no, you shouldn't jog. Have you seen your x-rays? That's a problem, right? Now, she and I had a, a discussion, and, and I presented some current research and some not-so-current research. We've known this a long time. OA is fine to jog with. If you didn't know that, it's fine to jog with. She didn't know that, and she was very appreciative, and she changed her narrative. Simple as that, right? So if we didn't communicate, that person would be left, the patient would be left in the middle not knowing what to do about jogging. Do I jog or do I not? Am I going to hurt myself? harm my knees more? I don't know. So this happens a lot where multidisciplinary care teams look great on paper, but they may not actually play out well in the best interest for patients. 
contrast that with interdisciplinary, which means that what you decide as a clinician for your care plan will influence my decision on what to do. And I may have my ideas after evaluating a patient on what is best for that patient, but then I talk to you and I think, oh, well that totally changes the picture for me. Now I think I need to recommend this and that instead. And this happens for me all the time because I have the luxury of working with an interdisciplinary team. That's not very easy. I, I will acknowledge that more than once, but the definition matters. And if we can strive to become interdisciplinary, even if we're not in the same facility, I think we're making good progress as a healthcare system across the US. This is a great paper to read. I'm not going to pull out all of the things and read them for you, but what I would find most important on this list, if you're thinking about starting a clinic or you would like to become more interdisciplinary, these are some principles to keep in mind. And what I find most important on this list are these four. M mutual respect should also say, and uh, effective communication. Communication is pretty key. That got dropped off somehow. So how do we become integrated and have an interdependent approach that takes a lot of open communication? And today, I'm going to get to the meat of the talk, which is really how do you pitch the other disciplines to your patient? That's where we start. How do you even get them to go? Because right? you can network with all the professionals you want, but if your patients won't go see them, what good is it, right? <clears throat> so we'd like to be on message. And what does that mean, beyond message, that, that NEOA example? If we're saying opposite things, giving advice that is really in conflict with advice from other practitioners, our patients are going to be stuck not knowing what to do. And they may write us both off, or they may uh, just continue to be scared and avoidant. So how can we learn to teach about pain as a problem in our body if you have chronic pain? Sure, and there may be things we need to do to the body parts, but it's also a problem in the nervous system. There have been several lovely talks this week on educating about pain from a neuroscience perspective. And if you didn't get to go to those, the slides are still very informative, so look at them. And how do we start the conversation about treating a nervous system? That's what my teammates and I say all the time to patients. You're here because you have chronic pain. That means we're treating your nervous system. We're not treating your back or your shoulder, your knee or your ankle today. We're treating your nervous system. We use that language and all of us do it. So how do we design a treatment plan that considers the nervous system and all of the facets therein, right? It's not a simple problem. But that also means you have to understand what your teammates might be telling them so you can reinforce some ideas that they may hear elsewhere. So that's what I hope to do for you today. Reinforcing the goals of care and the idea that there's no magic bullet, but multimodal care is the best way. We have enough data to say that now. And patients hearing that from multiple different providers will start to understand this is where I gotta be. I gotta talk to a number of different people and find a team that works for me, right? This may be, this is a, not an exhaustive list, but you'd, you'd be lucky if you have all those people, right? I have a good smattering of people on this list contained in the team I work on. Um, but anyone that works with a patient who has chronic pain could be on this list. A fitness trainer, right? A yoga therapist, a massage therapist, anyone else who's working with that patient, an acupuncturist, anyone could be added here, as long as we're also understanding that the patient is the biggest team player, that the patient needs to be part of this. We're not just telling a person what to do, but that person has input. Uh, and if everyone solicits the same input from the patients and we all talk, you might learn some interesting things. 
You might learn, for example, that the person told you, Carol, that, you know, I just really want to go on vacation with my family. And then I get told, I hate my family. I'm never going back to see them. Right? <laughs> there could be a disconnect that may explain a person's lack of engagement in any care plan because they may have something else underlying and, and sabotaging their motivation. But if we don't talk and we don't ask similar questions, we're not going to ever know that, right? So here's what you may hear. These are things that I've heard from patients, and you may have your own stories. So I work, uh, my office has, literally has a lead wall because right next door is the fluoroscopy suite. So the gurneys come down the hall, and then, the, you know, patients half naked, and they're walking over, and they're getting their shots. And, and so we talk about steroid injections and RFAs, and all the interventional medicine, medicine things are happening within view. So this is, this is something offered in the clinic standard of care where I work. But patients don't always understand what they're in for. They don't understand what's going to happen all the time. They may say, yes, 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 doctor, I'm, I'm, I'm on board. And then they come to my office and say, well, I don't get it. And this is one example. My doctor's suggesting a pain shot for my back. Well, he also said I have arthritis. So how's that going to help my arthritis? It's not going to like, I need surgery for that, don't I? <laughs> you know, these are the things that I get. And then say they have surgery. I think my biggest pet peeve currently is the term failed back syndrome. Right? Who failed? Failed what? And many patients will have a positive experience from surgery if they were expecting that to be a positive experience. Meaning response is pretty powerful. But I see all those folks whose pain came back. I work in a, what's called a tertiary care clinic. That means they've gone through all the other treatment options and then they come to me. And many have had multiple level surgeries, multiple years of surgeries, and still struggle with chronic pain. Um, so then, you know, this medical injustice is another layer we have to deal with. I think the surgeon messed up. These are things that they tell me. They may not tell the surgeon. What about the, uh, the good old, I want you to see my colleague in behavioral health across the hall. Well, but I have real pain. My pain isn't in my head. That still occurs every single day. And how do we overcome that? How do we rally around our mental health colleagues and actually help support the idea that this is, this is a really important facet of medical um, uh, multimodal care plans for chronic pain? And pharmacy, I have the luxury of working with pharmacists who get a lot of clinical activity, uh, but, and I'm not a prescriber. And that also gives me a great advantage, many opportunities to discuss medications in a non-threatening way, because I have no control over their medications when it comes down to it, right? So I get what feels like a vent session about medications. And so-and-so won't give me this and didn't do that, and I don't understand that. I feel like a guinea pig. And this is my favorite. I'm not on any pain medications. Well, what do you mean? What's your, what's your, I see your med list right here. Yeah, it's just Tylenol, right? <laughs> pain medication has a specific meaning to patients still. Uh, and how about this one, especially if you work acute care, I'm not doing that physical therapy business until you give me more meds. Or, yeah. or chronic pain care, same thing. How can I go move if it hurts to move? You got to give me meds for that. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not even going to get a toe in the water on the chronic pain uh, post-op. Not going to do that today. <laughs> but... I propose this, you start changing the narrative. Whatever discipline you work in, how can you flip the script? How can you take what a person says to you, a patient in pain, saying, 
to you about another clinician and flip it so that we start incorporating that person as part of the care team because you know they're going to be in one way or the other. How can we not throw colleagues under the bus and paint them in a very positive light and walk the line of patients' beliefs without invalidating beliefs? This is all very tricky business, right? So here's an example. Surgery was supposed to fix my pain. Back to this description. When you have chronic pain, it means you have a problem in your body and you have a problem in your nervous system. This is a direct quote from Neil Pearson. He's a physiotherapist in Canada. Wonderful resources out there. Neil Pearson, great videos on YouTube, P-E-A-R-S-O-N. When you've had pain for a long time, it means you have a problem in your body and a problem in your nervous system. And it looks to me like the surgeon did a great job fixing that body problem. Now let's work on the nervous system part. You and I can work on that, right? And I could do some things as a physical therapist. I could do some things um, to coach someone towards meditation therapy or what other standard ways we know to calm down a nervous system. What can we do right there in that moment? I can sit and breathe with a patient, teach a patient in five minutes or less why breathing is important for calming the nervous system. And I can do it before getting out of bed. I can do it before we do an exercise that previously has been really painful for that person who's scared to do it again. I can teach them how to calm a nervous system down and then do a thing that was really threatening and they have that lived experience that it's not so bad, right? And we can do that over and over and over. So teaching a person that the very basic principle is this, when you have chronic pain, it means you might have a problem in your body, but you also have a problem in your nervous system. That's a key concept. We're treating a nervous system here. And this works really well for patients who are, are at a higher level of function, athletes who want to get back to heavy lifting or back to really intense workouts. Most everybody knows how to treat a muscle system. They know overload training is the way to go. I work with veterans, a lot of them young. They don't quite get that's a different rule book, but when I explain that the nervous system is what we're treating, they can come on board to a different set of rules and how we get from point A to point B. And we can interrupt some of those disruptive flares. All right, <clears throat> so I said I have a lead wall in my office. And how do you explain what a shot is gonna do in the back when you were told you have arthritis? So what is it that causes pain down the leg? They wanna venture that? <laughs> That's a trick question because the answer is depends. <laughs> but this is what people are told. This is what Dr. Google tells them. They read stenosis. They read neural foraminal narrowing. They read pinched nerve, right? These are the scary messages that people will look up and hear about and learn about from other sources. And I understand with that concept, a patient won't get what a shot's going to do for me because the underlying problem is still there, right? But what if we reframe the whole underlying problem? How can it be we have large study data, population data from multiple countries from many years. We know that backs look all kinds of ways on the inside, and many people with gnarly-looking backs don't hurt. Dr. Glick does a wonderful job with Clinical Pearls Talk highlighting exactly that. Back pain and tissue issues don't predict each other, right? Patients don't always know this. All clinicians in the room probably know this. So how can we get them to understand that the shot in the back is actually helping in a temporary way, but ultimately we don't necessarily need to do anything to the anatomy structure under there? I use a tiny house metaphor. I live in San Francisco, so people are forced into tiny houses. <laughs> 
but a lot of them go there by choice. And it's fashionable now. Amazon is selling tiny houses, apparently, right? You can just buy this and put it on a plot of land. So just like humans, nerves can get used to small spaces. If you incrementally transition your life to go into a tiny house, you can be cool with it. Totally fine. So can nerves. Changes in our spine structure happen slowly over time for most people, which is why we can be asymptomatic and have all kinds of things on the inside, right? And nerves adjust to that. They're fine with small spaces for the most part. Other things can make them cranky, though. And by other things, in this case, we're talking about inflammatory mediators, pro-inflammatory cytokines that we know get upregulated in chronic pain states, and people aren't sleeping, and that changes the body chemistry too. So we have an inflammatory soup going on, and then their muscle tension might be a factor here, right? So all of these things can really put a load on those nerves, making them cranky. So if you're in your tiny house, back to the metaphor, and you're happy in your tiny house, but your in-laws come to visit and you didn't invite them, that tiny house is cramped, right? So it makes everyone crabby. And my question would be, do you need to just now upgrade to a new house? Is that the answer? And, if, and, and I'm talking now about surgery, no surgery, or something really invasive versus not. Patients who come to me don't often want surgery anymore. So they're scared of surgery. That may not be appropriate clinically. So these, these are um, narratives you could potentially use with patients who are not surgical candidates, who never will be, who never want to be, right? I'm not speaking for a surgeon here, but most stenosis uh, cases do best with conservative management anyway. But how do we get a patient to feel safe and secure in that body when they've looked at Dr. Google's analysis of stenosis? It looks really scary, right? Uh, so what do we need to do? The argument for lifestyle change and multimodal plans is built into that kind of story for a patient. The shot can help. If it helps, fantastic. All it does is get the in-laws to go home for the weekend. But how do we keep them there, right? How do we keep them out? <laughs> I love my in-laws. I don't mean to suggest that uh, anyone doesn't. But these are the key things, right? These are the lifestyle changes that everybody needs to consider in order to maintain a better balance of body chemistry and keep their nerves happy. Nerves need three things in life. And I tell my patients this all the time. They need blood, space, and movement. Well, and anti-inflammatory uh, circumstances, right? But blood, space, and movement, if people are not moving regularly, their nerves are going to be crabby. We have a built-in sensor for that. And I'm going to move on to pharmacy because we have multiple team members to talk about. As a non-prescriber, I have many opportunities to educate people about what might be going on with prescribing practices that seem frustrating to patients, that they feel frustrated or stigmatized by or confused by. So I do not prescribe, we know this, but it's my responsibility to understand many things about the medications that are prescribed so that I can make an informed sort of judgment on whether someone's behaving in a scary way. If they're using medications in a very unsafe way and they don't tell anybody else but me, I need to be able to identify that, right? But I also think it's important that I can have uh, a conversation about medications when I have no control over whether they get it or not, but I can reinforce messages that probably were told to them when the prescriber made a decision to or not to prescribe. So we're always thinking about medications having many different actions. Where I work, we've got a wonderful, what we call a rainbow sheet. The pharmacist, is she in here? Sarah back there, yeah. <laughs> 
So she does a lovely lecture for patients describing all the categories of medications that are all considered pain medications because mechanisms underlying some processes that may result in pain are complex and varied. There's not just one pain medication, right? There are many mechanisms of action, and th therefore most people with chronic pain have tried a lot of different things. And many are still on multiple different things in different categories, but they don't always understand that may not be in the presence of mind to get that and then they come to my office and I have a chance to say it to them in a, in a simpler way, perhaps, or reinforcing a message that, that has been said before. So balancing risk and benefit is always a choice that prescribers are making, and I have learned to do this. Sounds really hard, I might say to a patient. It sounds like you're really frustrated by this medication change, but I guarantee you your prescribers are always trying to look out for your best interest in balancing risk and benefit. So you probably had a conversation about that, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I did. Right. That's sort of what I get. And we are always thinking about what's safe and effective. With chronic pain, that doesn't, uh, even though I am an optimist and I definitely see people's pain change, the likelihood that they will continue to have pain that interferes in their life is high. So the likelihood they're going to be on medications like this for a while is high. So what are we going to think in the long term? What's safe and effective now and a year from now and 10 years from now? And that might change every year. So these are conversations that I can have as a non-prescriber that I do have regularly, often because patients will be frustrated by medications and I have a chance to reinforce some messaging. These are great uh, metaphors or analogies to use. If you're not familiar with this little video on the American Chronic Pain Association website, go find it. Car with four flat tires. So the narrative is simple. Uh, it's living with chronic pain is like driving a car with four flat tires. It's hard to get around and live your life. But medications can only fill one of those tires. So what else are you going to use to fill each of your three remaining tires? And it has to be from different categories. So that's a conversation you can have. We have another pain team that works in the primary care level where I work. And they've created a nice little worksheet that they do with the patient in the office to have the patient say what I'm going to use to fill the other three tires. And then they take that home with them. And then they get asked about it every visit. And because our pharmacist is a baker, <laughs> she likes this one, we know that baking a cake is complex. Looks like a simple product, but you can never bake a cake with only flour, and you can never really treat pain from a pharmaceutical standpoint with only medications. Medications can really only help about 20-30% if we're being realistic, right? And these are messages that we all will say to a patient. So baking a cake with only flour is like treating pain with only medications. Doesn't work very well. Now what about my psychology colleagues? Even though psychology has probably the most robust research and efficacious interventions, there's still a lot of stigma. A lot of stigma around this. And patients will always, uh, unless not, and always is a strong word, I'm surprised how often patients interpret an interaction with the provider that the provider thinks their pain is in their head. I'm surprised how often that happens. And the mere suggestion to go see a mental health provider because you have chronic pain seems to invalidate the real body pain that someone feels. So how do we get someone on board? What's your elevator pitch? Before we turn that direction, I just want to remind us that the meaning response is a very powerful physiologic thing. And there are many papers on this. Meaning response is uh, what used to be known as the placebo effect, but it's also got a, an evil twin here, the nocebo effect. So if you expect something not to help, it's probably not going to help very much, which is why how we pitch it 
matters, right? So I'm going to touch briefly on these two things. There have been some other talks this week fleshing out the details of them. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are both validated interventions for chronic pain and other health, chronic health conditions. And uh, patients still might not get what that means. And I work with veterans. They think acceptance means submission. And that, therefore, may um, solidify some resistance for them. But using a nervous system framework can really help. So the basic differences between cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy are here. In CBT, we can teach people how what they think translates into what they do and then how they feel about it, and those things interplay with each other all the time. And we can intervene here. We can teach about thoughts and intervene. There are very concrete ways to do this, and it's not reserved just in the mental health realm. There have been a number of papers in physical therapy journals in the last couple of years on how to incorporate CBT into a physical therapy plan of care. If you haven't read those, go do it, because all of us can do this. It's within our scope of practice. Acceptance and commitment therapy is not. It's not something I can do. It takes very specialized training, very long-term training. But what I can do is emulate some of the basic foundational concepts of ACT. So ACT is really, this is one of the exercises that a patient may encounter if they go through a full ACT course of care. Uh, in thinking about pain or, or other scary health conditions as the monster on the left and we're, we're stuck in this fight trying to resist the monster. We don't want the monster to get to us and we also don't want to fall in that hole. So we just pull harder and harder and harder and fight, right? But there's an alternative. You can just drop the rope. That doesn't mean the hole went away. doesn't mean the monster went away, but the fight is not the same. So that's a brief example of an activity that you might do in ACT. But back to CBT, this is the old way of pitching it. I wouldn't go if someone said this to me, right? CBT works with thoughts and behaviors to help you better manage your pain. Okay, so that means you're just going to help me kind of feel okay about suffering all the time. I don't get it. I wouldn't go either. But what if we talk about chronic pain as a nervous system problem? We know that chronic pain can change the nervous system and make it extra sensitive. And we also know that CBT is a well-established and effective treatment that works with thoughts and behaviors to calm the nervous system down so that it's less sensitive and you experience less pain. Try that one out on Monday. See how it goes. This does not advance. This is not a CBT reference book, but it is another reference that you can uh, use in your office easy to access, and lots of different metaphors and stories to help explain pain if you're struggling. It's a nice, concise little thing you can keep in your office. It's geared towards clinicians, but patients would be okay reading it too. It was written by two physical therapists. And acceptance and commitment therapy, if we're trying to emulate the elements of ACT, we got to know what they are, right? Be present, open up, and do what matters. There was a nice talk by Dr. Jonas this week, maybe yesterday, I'm losing track, and he talked about asking that question, shifting from what's the matter with you to what matters to you. And this is very consistent with the whole health model of care that the VA has um, uh, really embraced in the last couple of years. So doing what matters, this is something all of us can bring into the office no matter what we do clinically. We can ask the patient what matters to you and how does our care plan fit into that. But that also means we have to be aware of what our behavior is in the office. So here's how I would embrace the ACT principles. 
a psychologist I worked with years ago said this, and I love it, learn to be comfortable with discomfort. Clinicians have to learn to do that. If you're working with chronic pain, you have to learn to do that. That means we have to be aware of our own feelings and reactions. It's not easy. And I would argue, too, that we may not always know what we're signaling to patients with our body language, with our nonverbal cues. If you're looking at the clock or you're crossing arms and legs over and uh, if they, you know, they want to tell you something really important and you don't pay attention, that might be a signal that you don't care about that person. These are small things and there is science behind it, mirror neurons and mirroring behavior. Psychologists know this. Neuroscientists know it too. So what that might look like in the office, I teach my students this all the time. They get graded on how well they can uh, influence either a, a placebo or a nocebo. We talk about this. So what do I mean? I'll give you an example. If someone comes into my office and says, my back is killing me. It's a wreck inside. Did you see my MRI? I brought a disc with me. If you want to see the CD, I brought it with me. And what's socially appropriate in that scenario is to say, oh, that's so important to you. Let me take that. I'm going to look at it right now. Yeah, but what is that signal? That communicates directly, yes, your MRI matters so much more than your suffering. Let's look at that picture and maybe you need to see a surgeon. Right? That's the kind of transition that a patient might make. In contrast, if I get that same, have you seen my MRI? I have the CD right here. And I say, can see that's really important to you. Let's talk about that later. Keep eye contact. Don't talk about the MRI right now. Okay, with, with nonspecific low back pain, medical imaging studies, not that important. You all know this. So how do we reinforce that to patients? Not just what we say, but what we do, how we behave. Right, so don't be the nocebo. Right? If someone's freaked out about their MRI, it won't help that person for me to freak out about it. Okay, how do I model calm? and validate someone's experience of suffering. Being present is part of it. And that might mean every, between every patient visit, we have to take five seconds for ourselves to calm our own nervous system down so we can be present for the next person who comes into the office, because it's really hard to do this work. I don't want to uh, trivialize that at all. Oh, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> Push it once, all right. So how can you support physical therapists or other rehab specialists, other movement specialists, right? Y'all nodded in, in acknowledgement when I said who among your patients are really excited to go to physical therapy. There certainly are people who are not excited to go, and there are people who are too excited to go. Watch out for those two. Best thing you can do, in my opinion, is reassure patients about the robustness and resilience of their bodies. Do your physical exam and say, your body is resilient and strong. It hurts a lot, and it's hard to do things right now, but it's safe to do those things. If you're not sure how to do them, a physical therapist could probably help you get there, right? You might need to take a different approach. The dose of exercise you had before, if you want to use medication language, might have been too high. Let's find a different dose. That nervous system might have a different playbook than a muscle system, right? So some other phrasing that you can use with patients to just get in your mantra. Movement is medicine. Motion is lotion. These are things I throw around all the time. And people who really, you know, internalize that, they tend to do the best. So there is still a mismatch. We're dealing with people who have been trained really well as patients in the biomedical model. And we know that pain is complex and it doesn't fit that model anymore. We've got to dump it out. But patients are still right there. So we have, we have more work to do. And these are other proposals I would have for you to start shifting that uh, 
<clears throat> I guess, where we are on the spectrum towards the biopsychosocial model. These are some terms we use all the time. This is a great paper to read as well. Can we start infiltrating different language into our day-to-day -day talk with a patient about why they hurt and where they hurt, right? Nerves are stretched and trapped all the time. My elbow is getting a nerve pinch right now. Anyone who's resting on your hand, your ulnar nerve is getting pinched. Is that a bad thing? No, but in a back, for some reason, it's a terrible, scary, threatening thing. Okay, so how can we change our language? Everybody can do it. Oh, man, this is having a fit. All right, I'm almost done. So pain, remember, is complex and individual. Always individual. There are multiple factors that, uh, that will influence a pain experience, whether it's acute or chronic. And this is from Dr. Kakaro, the Straight Shot Health. I like this. I'm starting to use it more. I'm not very good at it yet, so, right? Is fire simple? Is it a simple formula? Ask any firefighter, they'd say, no, you can't just use water in every fire. No, you cannot. That will be dangerous, right? There are simple principles. There's the fuel source. It needs oxygen and it needs heat in order to spark a flame. But that doesn't mean the answer to a fire is the same in every scenario. You can't use the same approach with every person. You can't use the same approach with every fire. Remember those three domains, sensory, affective, cognitive. There's always some sort of sensory information going through and informing the protective uh, system about what to do. Their pain is useful, right? It motivates us, but my favorite quote from Todd Hargrove, pain is a call to action, it's not a damage meter. It is a call to action, it is not a damage meter, right? But the evaluative process, what we think about our pain, the meaning it has in our life can make a big difference in our behavior and our choices for health. And if we put this together, on the left is the fire, and that's kind of like pain. So every fire has a unique formula and different components. Every pain problem has a unique formula and different components. Which one needs addressing in your patient first? Which one needs the most addressed? And can we have a conversation about it? Right? I'll give you a second on this slide. You have the slides in your slide deck, but it's also nice to process in the moment. So you don't have to change what you do, but I would argue it's time to change how we talk about pain, how we conceptualize pain. That's my timer saying shut up, <laughs> right? <laughs> but how you talk about pain with patients might actually scooch them a little closer towards that group hug that we all need for team uh, management of a chronic pain problem, especially if it's longstanding and complex. Uh, and if you think always about every care plan, how does that affect a nervous system of the patient in front of you, and how does that influence the care plan of someone else on the team, then I think we're doing great, and we'll get there eventually. So if you want to contact me later for questions, here you go. Uh, that's my favorite walk right outside my, my front door in San Francisco. Love to do it. Um, and I'm around for questions, but that's what I have for you today, and thank you very much for coming and attending the whole 